Right. Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9 is what we're looking at this morning. As we continue our series through the book of Acts, to see how the Holy Spirit empowers the church to carry out the mission given to us by Jesus. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you teach us by your Holy Spirit to understand and to believe and to obey your word. We pray that you would be changing us, working in us and through us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning I was in uh, Psalm 142, not for the sermon, just reading Psalm 142. And in fact, I'm good, let me just, I'll just go there. And so in Psalm 142, I'll just read you the first two, two, two verses. It says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. And I was just reminded again that you can't get very far in the scripture without seeing that God's people are frequently weary, tired, or wandering, doubting, questioning. There is weakness and temptation and attack. There is general discouragement that, that God's people experience throughout their lives. And this is true of us as well. We all know what it is to be weak, weary, afraid, or discouraged, and then we really want to know, like, what is it that gives me confidence? Where is the courage and the boldness that I need? Where does it come from, right? And so we look for that in the world, right? We find different things that we use from time to time to kind of pump us up. Some of us have pump-up songs, right? So songs that just get you going. You get excited when you hear that song. You get, you're driving, and it makes you feel better. And that's not a bad thing, right? But that's just a little, a little emotional bump, a little high to kind of motivate you. But real courage, lasting courage, transformative courage, that kind of spiritual certainty, where does that come from? I know we would say God. It comes from God. It comes from Jesus. Right? And that's good. But it's much more helpful for us to be able to pinpoint the various ways in which the knowledge of God gives us courage. And today we find one. In this passage we see that it is the converting work of God which is the confidence of the church. The converting work of God is the confidence of the church, the confidence of the Christian. And the more we understand the converting work, the converting power of God, the more 
confidence and boldness and hope we will have in our lives. So this is what I want us to do. We're going to look at this passage in two basic parts. We're going to consider Saul the persecutor, and then we're going to consider Saul the Christian. Okay, in verses 1 and 2, we see Saul the persecutor. Now, we've been talking about Saul. He's been showing up here a couple of times in the book of Acts, and it says in verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus to find out are there any belonging to the way so that he could find them and arrest them. Who is Saul? We've gone over this before, but let's just revisit it very briefly again in case you forgot or if you're new to this series here. Uh, Saul was a rabbi. Jewish leader of his day, knowledgeable of the word, and had a really good reputation among his peers. He was actually trained by the big dog of his day, Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the respected uh, discipler of disciplers, right? So Gamaliel was his mentor, his teacher, and he sat under his leadership for some time. Eventually, he comes out from under Gamaliel, and he has his own work to do, and he builds his own reputation, and he develops his own identity, and he is different from Gamaliel, whereas Gamaliel was kind of a peacemaker in a lot of ways, sort of a moderate guy. Paul is on full tilt. We'll see why in just a minute. Now, Saul is a man that has been building his life and his reputation as a, as, as a Jew, and he has been basing it on his understanding of the law and faithfulness to God. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, as a Christian, as an apostle, Paul's thinking back to his old days, his old life, and he is explaining that, listen, we cannot boast in ourselves or in our works or in our achievements, right, because no matter how good we may be in our lives, we are still damned before God if we only only have our righteousness to hold on to. We need the righteousness of God, which is found in Christ. And then he says, but if anybody is going to boast in what they achieved, then I should be able to boast in my pedigree. And so he begins to list off where he really came from, right? He says, listen, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul has a pedigree. Paul, Saul, same guy. I'm using the names interchangeably because they are interchangeable. We'll talk about the name stuff at another sermon. But so Saul says, listen, I don't boast in these things, but I used to boast in these things. Now I count them all as rubbish, but I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was an example to all other men around me. And not only was I godly in such a way, right, I was morally upright in such a way that people around me would say he's blameless. I would, had so much zeal for God that I persecuted the church. He's not saying that that was right. He understands that that was wrong and sinful. But the point is, is that he was zealous and committed. If, there, if we're going to boast in ourselves, then we can certainly boast in those kinds of works. So here we have Saul, right, this leader among his people with a reputation for discipline and consistency and zeal. His zeal, he says in Philippians, right, made him a persecutor, and that's what he is. It says in chapter 9, verse 1, that Paul was still breathing threats and murder. So this is happening on the heels of what we just read, right, where we see conversions and, and people getting baptized, Philip and the Ethiopian, and the Ethiopian is converted, and Philip continues to preach the gospel. So God is at work, but while this is happening, here's Saul breathing murder, which is maybe the most scary phrase in the Bible that comes from a person. 
Saul is breathing murder. It means that he is consumed with rage and hatred for the church. It is his very life. He breathes it. You've heard the expression like, oh, I just live and breathe. Whatever it is, this is Saul. He breathes it. He must destroy the church. It is his passion, his zeal, his purpose. Saul was hunting people down, gathering intel on Damascus. He's gathering intel. Listen, Saul isn't just like, all right, we hate those Christians. They're nutty. They got some things we don't believe in. And they're growing. and We don't like it. And he's not saying, like, hey, when it, when it shows up, we got to deal with it. He's hunting. He's hunting. He says he, goes, it says he goes to the high priest and he's like, listen, I need all the details on the synagogues in Damascus because I need to find these people that belong to the way, these Christians, these disciples. Why Damascus? Damascus was a big city, a major city, uh, a city where a lot of people came in for trade and commerce. So people would come from all over into that city and then go back out. It was a city with a lot of Jews and a number of synagogues, which meant that that's a really ideal place for Christians to gather. Lots of synagogues where the scripture was and, they're in, and a lot of Jews, and then they can spread out as they make converts of people. They go back to their hometowns, back to their places of residence, and they bring that gospel message with them. I think Saul probably understood, like, that's, that's a strategic place for them to be. I better find out what's going on. So he's trying to gather intel, he says to the high priest, like, I want to have all the information so that if anybody is belonging to the way, men or women, I can get them, arrest them, charge them. And if they don't recant, then we can eliminate them. This is Saul, breathing murder. He was like the boogeyman, but real. I mean, what do you think Christian parents told their young children about Saul? There's a man who is looking for us. He is coming for us. He's gathering intel to find out who follows this Jesus that we worship. And if he finds out it's us, he will take us away from you. He's like the boogeyman, but he's very, very real. Saul is seeking out people belonging to the way. Let's just talk about that as an aside, okay? Just as an aside, very, very briefly. The disciples are starting to be called the way. Now, Groups, movements get names, right? Especially if there's any significant movement to the movement, right? They get a name so that they're identifiable. Sometimes they give themselves a name. Sometimes they're given the name. Christians are beginning to be called the way. They were called disciples, right? Which makes sense. Everybody knows that. You can have disciples of anybody. But now they're getting their own kind of identity. It's a kind of branding, right? It just kind of falls upon them. They're called the way. And scholars argue about, well, why were they called that? And it very well could be that they were called the way because of their way of living. They followed Jesus. They obeyed his commands. They, it could be that their, their life of godliness and piety and love, this way of living and being was so obvious and demonstrable that that just became what they were called. Or it could be the, a reference to the, the, the mission, right? That they are on their way to make disciples, right? They are constantly uh, reaching out and preaching the gospel and discipling and, and baptizing people. Or it really could be grounded in John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Maybe they were called the way, because Jesus said that about himself. Whether it's those or not isn't as significant as they are called the way. 
The church understood from the very beginning that there is only one way by which we can be reconciled to God, where we can have our sins forgiven, our lives restored before God and for eternity. There is only one way we can be not only reconciled to God, but adopted by God, and that's through Jesus Christ. The church was called the way because they preached the way of salvation. Movements get names. And they begin to be identified, and people hear that name, and they have certain things that, that, that resonate, like, oh, OK, I've heard that movement. I know a little bit about it. And it just makes me wonder, like, what does our name conjure in the minds of people who hear it? Like uh, a Christian, like when, when people hear Christian, what do they think? When they hear Baptist, that's another title for us, what do they think? When they hear Southern Baptist, now, OK, now they're even more narrow, and that's a part of the, the convention that we're a part of. What reputation do we have? What comes to their mind? Because whatever it is, we contribute to it. Or what we can go even smaller, even narrower, Redeemer Fellowship. When people hear Redeemer Fellowship, what comes to mind? Maybe most people in the community would be like, never heard of it. What is that, Redeemer Fellowship? Oh, it's a church. Okay, cool. Uh, what kind? Of, they don't really know. But the people that do, the people that have interacted with this church, what, what do they say? I know what some have said. But I wonder... If we think enough about how we represent Christ in our local church, because really, it's not about giving our church a reputation, but it is about making Jesus known in our local assembly. We have the ability to a large degree to influence what the world sees about us as Christians in Redeemer Fellowship or in a Baptist convention. The world will oftentimes get it wrong and make up things about us, but our title means something, and so we should contribute to improve that interpretation. All right, so Saul is a persecutor of the way. He is seeking them out, hunting them down, so that he can arrest, arrest them, prosecute them, and follow up with severe punishment if necessary. That is Saul, the persecutor. But in verses 3 through 9, we see Saul the Christian. Something happens here. Saul meets Jesus. Look at verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So Saul is on his way. He's going to do the very thing no Christian wants him to do. And on the way, he sees the light. Right? I mean, that, that's actually an expression that we use, right? I saw the light, or he, that he finally he saw the light. It's an expression that is popular. It comes from this. Paul is on his way. This bright, blinding light shines around him, and it changes him. In fact, I'm not, I'm telling the truth. I always tell, I don't lie. I'm not one of those preachers that tell, makes up stories because they're good. I don't have any good stories anyway. But the point is, like, I was in, uh, I was in my car this week, and I was listening to Aerosmith. And um, Aerosmith has this song called Amazing. And I haven't heard this song in years. But the chorus is, it's amazing how in the blink of an eye, you finally see the light. And the whole song is about this. It's about like, oh, my life is messed up and I almost gave up. I thought there was no purpose or point. And then all of a sudden, boom, oh, it's amazing how in the blink of an eye, you finally see the light. It's an expression that most people understand, right? And since like the 1800s, it's been really in common use as, oh, it, oh to see the light is to be uh, intellectually enlightened. It's to come to a new understanding, oftentimes a, a, a dramatic and quick change in our perspective. 
Paul sees this light, this observable bright light, blinding light, makes him fall down even. People around him see this light. And in this light, he now hears a voice. Look at verse 4. And falling down to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, this to me is the most amazing, gracious introduction of a holy God to a blaspheming sinner who wants to destroy God's children. It's, I don't know. The shows that I watch, the movies that I watch, the stories that I like to read, the books, when the antagonist who has been breathing murder is finally confronted by the hero... Yeah, it's time to get it on. It's time to crack skulls. It's time to crush the evil. It's time to, to, to demonstrate your power and authority to van vanquish the bad guy. And Saul is the bad guy. He is, he's not the devil, but boy, he's an agent of the devil. And instead, God comes to meet him, confronts him, bright, blinding light, holiness of God. Now this voice from heaven, it's Jesus himself speaking to Saul. And instead of saying, oh, you're the tough guy that wants to kill my children. Time to go. He doesn't. Jesus extends kindness, grace, mercy to Saul. He asks him a question. <laughs> he asks him a question. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my people, me. Saul needs to understand, listen, to persecute my people is to persecute me. You're coming after my, my, my brothers and sisters, and then you're coming after me. And this is a principle that we see that Jesus talks about on a number of times. As you've done it to the least of these, so you have done to me. So Saul is asked a question. Why are you persecuting me? This is also significant. Because remember who mentored Saul? Gamaliel. And if you remember back in chapter 5, as the gospel was being preached and the disciples were told, hey, stop, just stop, because it's getting old. We don't like the influence that you're having around, kind of making people doubt what we've been teaching for a long time. Knock it off. And they're like, cool, peace out. And they go and they preach the gospel again. They don't, they don't care. They have to obey God, not man. So now the leadership in, in Acts 5, the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, they're like, hey, we need to, we need to like, arrest them. We need to shut them down. We need to do whatever it takes. We need to, let's kill them. Let's do something. And Gamaliel's the guy that says, like, look, I understand where you're coming from, but it's not a good idea because what if, what if we go against them and this whole thing is of God? Because if it's of God, then we are opposing God. Let me just refresh your memory. Acts chapter 5, 38. He says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. Saul heard those words, disregarded, and now he's confronted with the reality. Gamaliel had some wisdom. He was right. And you have been opposing God. And now you stand before God or lay before God on your face in the midst of this blinding light. 
So Gamaliel warned, Saul disregarded, and now he understands, I have been opposing the Lord. So he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what's Saul's response? He, he, he has another question for Jesus in, in verse 5. He says, who are you, Lord? Now, what does this mean? Jesus just said, you are persecuting me. So a lot of scholars are arguing that, well, no, listen, he understood that this was Jesus. He's asking in this context, like, I can't wrap my head around this. Who are you? I mean, who, who, who is Jesus? So maybe he's asking that. Maybe he is confused about who is speaking to him. But in the midst of this confrontation, this divine meeting, where he should be judged and consumed with holy wrath, he's not. He's asked a question, why are you persecuting me? And he responds with, who are you? Paul is still confused and somewhat ignorant here. Just like most people when we're converted, man, we don't have much figured out. Unless you've been raised up, trained, and discipled to a very high degree throughout your childhood in good Bible doctrine, and then you finally come to conversion at some point later in your life, then maybe you have a pretty good comprehension of all things Bible and theology. But most of us when we're converted, man, we've got a very, very little number of things figured out. I didn't, I didn't have any grasp on the Trinity. I knew there were three. I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't really, I certainly didn't have that figured out. I didn't know most of the stories of the Bible. Saul's being converted and he's just now beginning to wrap his, his brain around who Jesus is. He says, Lord, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus whom you have been persecuting. He's offered mercy here. He says in verse six, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. He says, I want you to go to the city you've been planning on going to. But you're now and you're going there for a totally different reason. You were going there to kill. You were going there to arrest. You were going there to persecute me and my people. But now you're going to go there and you're going to become one of us. And we're going to see this unfold in Paul's life as it actually moves forward. He calls Saul not only to go to this city, but in all of this, he is calling Saul to himself. This is Saul's conversion story. And we know he's converted here because from this point on, we see him believing, obeying, evangelizing. And this is, this is how it un unfolds. I mean, Saul, even here, begins to obey Jesus. You see it in verses 8 and 9. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is the beginning of Saul's new life. He went from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive in this moment. We're seeing it happen. And no, it's not described in the same way that many people would describe their testimony today, and we'll get to why that is a little bit later. But Saul's conversion is profoundly true and life-changing. It alters everything about his life, the path that he was on. Now, he's, he would later say, like, when, when we are converted, right, when we believe in Christ, we are crucified with Christ. We are joined to Christ. And just as Christ was crucified and died for our sins, we are crucified with Christ to die to our sins and to die to the world. And here is Saul, 
crucified with Christ, dying to sin. And like Jesus was in the tomb for three days of darkness, he is now blinded for three days of darkness and fasts without eating or drinking. From this point on, he's different. He's obeyed. But how come it doesn't say like, he doesn't say, oh, I believe you and now I forever commit my way to you. Why does, I don't understand. Like he does not pray in the sinner's prayer. I don't understand. Like how can he have assurance if there isn't somebody to say, did you pray the prayer? Check the box. Did you mean it when you prayed it? Check the box. You're all good. I mean, how is he supposed to have assurance if there, you know what I mean? Like there's no evangelist there. It's just Jesus talking to him. It's like, it's like just the word like being presented. How does he have any kind of assurance? And it's because this is the nature of true conversion. True conversion. And I want us to take away just two things here from this passage before we get into some application. Uh, one thing to take away is that conversion is God's work. It is not our work, right? We've made this point already, but let's make it again. The word conversion is, is, is rather broad, right? And it includes a number of different elements. Conversion, yes, it's a person's coming to Christ, right? It's a, it's a person going from a state of unbelief to a state of belief. But conversion really comprises, right, both regeneration that then leads to faith and repentance. Regeneration is the new birth. That's what Jesus calls it, right? In John 3, he tells Nicodemus, to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. If you're not born again, you don't get to see the kingdom. You've got to be born. This is something outside of your control. You cannot create it, force it, manipulate it. It happens to you. It doesn't happen by you. So you must be born again. Or look at 1 Peter, or just listen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's God who causes us to be born again. It is his will and it is his power. It's that regeneration that changes our heart so that we now see things as they really are. We believe the gospel. We trust in the Lord. We see our sin. So faith and repentance are the immediate byproduct of this regeneration or new birth. That's conversion and that's God's work. Our job is to preach the gospel, to call people to faith and repentance, but we can't change anybody. And this is a challenge. This is the second thing I want us to take away. This is a challenge to a lot of the ways the church today has popularly um, talked about conversion or worked out conversion in their evangelistic ministries. Because what I've seen mostly, especially in, in our convention or denominational context, is I see two things. And if you're serious about evangelism, you do these two things. And if you're not serious about evangelism, then obviously you're not, that's why you're not doing these things, because you don't care. But here's what I see in most modern evangelism. One is the need to raise your hand or walk an aisle as a part of your coming to faith in Jesus, right? Now, in some senses, this is a way to just identify who is feeling something or believing something or God is at work in them. It's not wrong to raise your hand or to walk an aisle, but it has become a staple among many churches and evangelistic ministries. Who wants to, to, to believe, who's ready to follow Jesus? Raise your hand or walk the aisle and come forward. And in association with that is the second thing, which is praying what's called a sinner's prayer. And the sinner's prayer is essentially a, a rote prayer that, um, and let's just assume it's a great prayer. It's a prayer of belief, confession, and commitment. And so it's either read from a card or it's repeated after somebody who is uh, stating it and leading us all in prayer. 
And so the, the practice goes, you raise your hand, you say, I'm ready, or you walk the aisle indicating you're ready. You pray this prayer, and now you're asked, like, did you, if you're asked or, you're, or it's told you, if you prayed that prayer and meant it in your heart, then you are saved. Your sins are forgiven. You are made right with God. The problem is not just that this is completely unbiblical, like there's no example of anything like this in Scripture. The problem is that it confuses how conversion works. It confuses where assurance comes from. Because what we see happening in Scripture is the call to repent of sins and to believe in Jesus, an enthusiastic, passionate plea, forsake your sins and come to Jesus after a preaching of the gospel. But there's no pray this prayer and did you mean it? Because the problem is, is people have been praying that prayer for decades, over 100 years. They pray that prayer, and they can be sincere in praying the prayer. But that doesn't mean that they actually have faith. But now they've been told by a mere man or woman that if you prayed it and meant it, you are saved, you are secure. And it has given a false assurance to so many. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't use that particular messed up presentation of the gospel. He can use any messed up presentation of the gospel. He uses my messed up presentations of the gospel. He can use anybody. And I know a number of people have been saved in the context of praying the prayer and walking the aisle. I'm not saying God is not at work and that everything that's associated with it is bad. I'm just saying we need to have a proper understanding of how conversion works. God's spirit convicts as we hear the scripture and by God's power and will, he causes a person to be born again, which results in faith and repentance. You don't need to walk an aisle. You don't need to pray a prayer. Now, you may. There's nothing wrong with praying a prayer in the midst of, of all of this or even committing your way to the Lord. I didn't. I remember when I was converted, I was on my bed reading the Bible, and I, believe, I went from not believing to believing. That's what happened to Paul. You see, you see what happened? Saul, Saul went from being... Uh, a denier to a disciple, right? I mean, so it, in, in an instant, in the blink of an eye, right? He, he, he went from being the antagonist of the church to an apostle for the church. Like, it was God doing this work. So this is a challenge to our understanding of, of, of conversion and evangelism the way we, uh, we do it quite a bit today. So let's be really clear. We need to be, as Christians and churches, zealously preaching the gospel to everyone who will listen to us, calling everyone to repent and to believe, and then giving them paths to follow, right, so they can be discipled in the local church. Absolutely. But it's God who does the real work. So what does this really mean for us in a practical sense? We started with this. The converting work of God is the confidence of the church. Therefore, it is the confidence of every Christian. And so here's what I mean to all the Christians that are here. If this is true, and we believe this is true, if the doctrine of conversion is the work of God, the sovereign work of God in making people new creatures, new creatures in Christ, then this should move us to praise God for his sovereign power in saving us. It should move us to worship him because you would not have come to Christ were it not for his divine power. You would never have believed. You would never have repented. And most of you know this, even intuitively, that God has been at work in you before you came to faith in Christ. 
He was convicting and converting, convicting and, and leading and, and, and show, show, showing you different things, maybe in truth or scripture, like for whatever ways he's been leading you to this moment where you would finally believe. Most of us understand this, but even biblically, we should be able to see that no one comes to the Father but through Christ, and Christ is the one who says, it's the Father that draws you to me. You should praise God because he saved you. And that means you should remember God's power in saving you. It is God who caused you to be born again, which is every bit a miracle as it was for Saul. Saul doesn't have a better testimony than you. I don't have a better testimony than you, and you don't have a better testimony than me because it's all the same. Whether you are an antichrist antagonist or whether you are a morally upright good church kid, it makes no difference because both are children of wrath by nature and under God's judgment until we are justified by faith. And we don't get there without God's converting power, his converting work. Only God can make this happen. So we remember that power, that power that made you a new creature in Christ. Remember that because God is still in you. The divine power that made you a new creature, that replaced your heart, that's been changing your mind, that divine power is still in you by means of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. It's not that God made you new and then walked away and leave you on your own, right? God made you new but dwells with you to continue to renew you more and more progressively, practically, truly in your character. Because I know a lot of us, we get discouraged, we get weary, we get fearful, how am I going to persevere through this? How am I going to overcome this temptation or this sin? How am I going to, how am I going to make it? How am I not going to just lose my grip entirely? The God who rose Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead dwells in you to sanctify you, to change you, to give you hope, to strengthen your faith, to refine your theology, to cause you to be fruitful in your good work. You can have confidence because that God and that divine power is still at work. The converting work of God is the confidence of the church. It's the confidence of the Christian. And finally, if you are a non-Christian, if you are not a believer, I want you to do, consider your sin and God's grace. Because you know, Saul was in a place where he was blind to much of his own sin. He could see externally, like, I'm a pretty righteous guy. People like my reputation. You know, there's really nobody can say anything about me. I mean, those Christians don't like what I'm doing, but they have it coming. So, like, he didn't really see. He couldn't see his sin until God showed it to him. It took Jesus appearing to say, you are persecuting me. So consider your sin and your guilt. Do you see it? Do you recognize that you, like everybody else, are corrupt and not just stained, but internally we're, we're, we're filthy because of our own doing, because we've turned away from truth and God and made ourselves the arbiters of truth. We've worshipped other things and people or we've put ourselves before everybody else. Do you see your sin and guilt? And now if you do, if you do see that, then I want to encourage you to give thought to God's love and grace because that's the message we see again and again. We see it in Saul. What did Saul deserve? 
judgment. That's what he deserved. Saul deserved judgment, public, dramatic, fire from heaven. But he doesn't get that, does he? God extends kindness to him in mercy. Jesus himself shows up and converts him. Why? Because God loves sinners. He loves sinners. He doesn't love former sinners who are now sinless. He loves sinners and saves sinners and then justifies them and sanctifies them. Give thought to God's love and grace because you see it, you will see it in Jesus who saves the unworthy. This is our message. This is what we preach. That's what Philip was doing uh, before we got to chapter 9. It's why Saul is going down to Damascus, going down to Damascus to stop this preaching. And now, now this, this lion who's going into Damascus to destroy is going to be led by the hand because he's blind by a new, by, into a new way of being. He'll be led there to join the very people he was persecuting, to become a preacher of the very gospel that he hated because that gospel changed him. And every Christian here has this same amazing opportunity to preach the gospel that saved us, to remember and to live in the divine power that made us new creatures in Christ and to have confidence not only in our evangelism, that God will do all that really hard work, but that God will continue to work in us until the very end. We have confidence in God, yes, in Jesus, yes, but one of the places we find it in particular is in God's converting power and work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would continue to teach us, that you would show us our need for your power in our life today, to grow and to become the people you've designed us to be. But we pray that that, that truth, the doctrine of conversion, Lord, would, would give us courage, not just in our lives, but in our ministry and in our hopes to see other people follow Jesus as well. God, we pray that you'd be at work in all of us here, that you would draw all of us close to Jesus, whether for the first time or just in our ongoing growth and need for revival. In Jesus' name, amen.